Brother Mark Giorgiano is going to be continuing his series, and his first class is entitled Comfort in Offense, Reconciliation in the Kingdom. Brother Mark. Dear brothers and sisters, there's another affliction which is a little less spoken of, uh, but a lot more experienced in life in the truth, and that is the affliction that requires reconciliation. Offense. Offense is, is a broad term that can cover all manner of offenses, some justifiable and others without any justification whatever in Christ. And we know that's true. And yet we are somehow helplessly, inexorably bound to our nature and with our nature to the affliction of offenses. They're on all levels. We can't get away from them. As a matter of fact, what we experience within is so much more intensive without when you look, for example, at government officials or even nations on a, on a larger level, at the way offenses are um, batted back and forth and utilized, exploited to the, the, the either the literal assassination or the political assassination of opponents, it's astonishing. And I think knowing Christ and, and knowing what we do of human nature and uh, the, the, the fruits of the Spirit... We can, we've, we've managed to temper all that, but we also experience in ourselves the distasteful side of human nature that we recognize is so overtly present in the officials and um, fake personas of the world. This is, is just what we bear in Christ. And part of that conflict comes from being in Christ, and part of that conflict comes from not having enough of Christ's mind in us to actually fulfill at a very high level being of one mind and judgment in Christ. There, there's, there's a lot of range in this discussion. So it is not meant to be critical. It's meant, on the other hand, to show uh, by contrast, as have all the other afflictions that we've been speaking about, uh, in con- the, the contrast between the affliction of irreconcilable differences and the reconciliation that is promised in the kingdom. I'd like to start today's consideration with a testimony of a very good friend of mine. I met him when I was in college, but I didn't meet him personally I met him because I read one of his books. And when I read this book, I became a close friend of his. It was, um, the book was England's Ruin. I don't know if any of you have ever even heard of that book. It's a little known book written by Brother Roberts um, in response to a book that was written by a man, uh, Mr. Blatchford, who was advocating socialism as the cure of everything that was wrong with not only the society of uh, the, the British Empire, but the, all the societies of the world. And Robert Roberts read his book, which was entitled Merry England, and it frosted his brain. So, in typical fashion, uh, which was more fashionable in those times than it is in this, he wrote a book called England's Ruin, in which he directly addressed Mr. Blatchford, uh, repeatedly by using his name, Mr. Blatchford, and I don't know how he said it, but I think it was something like that. And, uh, and on and on he went. And, and I read this book and it just, I don't know, it got into me and I was in college and I had just read Catcher in the Rye. And uh, it kind of reset my relationship to my education. I don't know those of you who, who had to read re- as required reading in English 101 as I did in college, um, catcher in the rye, but it was such insipid filth when I read it, and it's such a ridiculous um, attempt at finding meaning in the meaninglessness of the wisdom of this world um, that when I read England's Ruin in contrast to it and the incredible defense of the truth 
that he was making that that made in contrast to me made so much more sense than anything I derived outside of the profanity um, of uh, or excuse me in addition to the profanity and catcher in, in the rye that I made up my mind in my freshman year in college that from now on I was going to ignore all the syllabuses that they gave me on uh, books to read in my various classes on anthropology and sociology and psychology and simply read what I wanted to read from our own literature, relate that to the subject at hand, and then do all my uh, my essays and my theses on the books, on Christian literature related to anthropology and sociology and psychology. And in one class, I uh, almost flunked the class, gave me a D and took me um, away from my magna cum graduation to just cum laude. Uh, but in another class in psychology, I wrote the same essay derived from Robert Roberts' writings and his tone and his disposition and the wisdom of God's word applied to the things of this world. And uh, that class, the, the professor came and he said, one student has, has introduced me to a new form of activism that I did not know in this world. I have never discovered. And to him, that was a big discovery. And that activism, of course, is the truth as it presents itself to the world in a conflicting message, a message that is unnatural and unwanted in the ears of worldly men and women. So he said, this, this new form of activism was so well put that I felt like giving it an, an A quadruple plus. However, he said, no one in my class, including myself, could get four, four pluses after an A. So I have reduced it to an A triple plus, and that's the grade. And that was my essay <laughs> that I flunked in sociology and uh, stood out in, in uh, psychology. So it was my friend Robert Roberts who, uh, who gave me that uh, wonderful introduction to the passion that can be there in our love of the truth. The truth is really a passionate thing. And the reason is that it's a greater reality than the one we live in. We live in, in the world as it is, um, as men have made it. And it's reality enough, isn't it? It's a stark reality, a harsh reality, a cruel reality, but a reality that also has in it concepts of sharing and love and familial relationships and um, male-female relationships in the midst of all this suffering uh, even heroism, the heroism of the world and the protection of, of the powers that be, all these things is kind of this mixed message, this, this irony that we live in in the reality of the world, but the reality of the truth that gives us the passion for it is a greater reality than that because it's, gonna, it's, it's the, the way that God will take what exists and reframe it, remold it, reshape it into the reality of his world, his kingdom which would be the, the rule of Christ in this world. When I saw that in this brother, I thought, this is a man, this is a man I can identify with. And so, after having read England's Ruin, I read many of the other books uh, there in college, did reports on them, uh, managed to get grades in the 60s uh, by writing about everything but what they wanted me to read and respond with. Uh, it was so loose and strange in the 60s with teachers about just as hallucinated as the students in those days. If those of you who were in college in the 60s know what I'm referring to. Those were the Timothy Leary days. And they were strange days indeed, but a good time to make good grades in college on anything that would dawn on you as being important to talk about in your responses to those subjects. So, but this picture, if you look at it more closely, you won't see a man that is full of passion. When I first saw this picture and realized this was a few days before he, he, he died, um, it made me cry. It made me cry because I saw in his face what I already knew was a problem with him. He was always somehow embroiled in controversy, and it was controversy his life was dedicated to avoiding and yet irresistibly involved with. This, this was a few days before he fell asleep. And when you look at his eyes, do you think that looks like the excitement of passion about the truth? Or more likely, the face of Christ as he was facing the Pharisees or, um, or Paul when he was beaten up in the synagogues 
um, when he brought love to people and they responded with enmity. If you're a Christadelphian and you have a few years under your belt, you know a little something about that. It's not really an indictment against anything but the fact that we are helplessly bound to our nature and in that working in, in the field of the development of the mind of Christ in the context of that particular affliction, which is what developed the Lord himself in his relationship with uh, a nation and a particular a priesthood that didn't recognize the royal majesty of the kingdom when it stood right in front of them. So I discovered a few years back when I was putting these things together, a letter in the middle of a book on other things of Christadelphian writings, which was, he entitled, A Letter to My Enemies. Why would he write such a thing? What would possess a man to write a letter to his enemies? If you had enemies, within or without, would you send them a letter? Or would you, in fact, not send them any more letters after all the letters that you had attempted to send didn't go anywhere? That's more like where I was when I discovered his letter. So I wondered the same thing. What would... What would possess a man to write a letter to his enemies? And I am certain after reading that, that it was a desire to reconcile. If you know anything about Christ, you know that we are in a, a, a ministry of reconciliation. Because we have joined with Christ in his ministry of reconcile, reconciliation, which in his case was an, uh, the Son of God reconciling the word, the, the world to God, that this man who was a, a mediator between God and men, making this ladder between uh, the, the real mercy seat in heaven where the, the two cherubim have been replaced by God and his Son to earth, which is, I believe, the, the foot of that ladder is in the house of God, which means it comes down into uh, our ecclesial life when we assemble together and come before the throne of God. And it's the ladder that connects us is the Lord Jesus Christ. And that is his reconciliation. So if what he, when he died on the cross, he died to reconcile the world to his father. And ours then becomes a ministry of reconciliation. Then it appears to me that the context of this affliction in our lives, the enmity, the, the, the misunderstandings, the offenses and judgments and the, uh, the controversies that we deal with that seem to be irreconcilable on one hand, but we know are reconcilable on the other. We have evidence that these controversies are reconcilable. Then all of this is involved in training us in reconciliation because once we enter the, the, the royal administration of Christ and his kingdom, the whole goal of that kingdom, that throne, will be to take a mortal world, which is just as possessed of will be just as possessed of human nature then as it is now, but Satan being bound up, using that administration and that righteous law that proceeds from the mouth of our Lord to reconcile the whole world to Him in the kingdom, and that reconciliation will be essentially will result in peace on earth and goodwill toward men. It will bless all the families of the earth. So you can see what a, an important. Um, intrinsic subject it is to think about reconciliation and reconciliation only means anything in the context of irreconcilable differences, of variance, which is a fleshly work. So I'm going to read to you some bits from his letter and make some points as we go about each one. He, at the outset of his letter, he recognized that Christ is, is really in control, even though when you get into a controversy, you don't know that he is. So he said, I greet you in the best of good wishes. My greeting may not be acceptable. It is nevertheless sincere. And he can already sense the sadness. I assure you, he said, I can pray, and this I do. Rarely do I bend my knee before the maker of us all without asking him to open your eyes to bring your steps into paths of wisdom and love. And when I read that, I think of Stephen, who, while he was being stoned, asked God to open their eyes. And he did. They, they, they may have crucified him, but there were 3,000 added to him in baptism on the day that they realized that's what they had done. Even among them, the Apostle Paul, who held the garments while they stoned Stephen, uh, was an oppressor, a scorner, but turned into one of those followers because of this, of this prayer to open their eyes. And you know, it's been said, you've heard this before, 
that the Apostle Paul had to go blind in order to open his eyes. Such an interesting irony in his life. And I think that's, that may be true of some of the rest of us in varying degrees. He continues to say, expect persecution. That's, that's the message for us as we, as we trace the feelings he's going through. He says, when I was quite young, I was smitten with the beauty of the popular dictum that it was a good thing, a thing to be aimed at, to have no enemies. Uh, this is the goal of all politicians, uh, of all people who, who achieve a great level of status in the world. I worked under the power of this idea for a good while, but having the Bible standard before me in all things, I came to see this futility and to perceive the reason of the saying of Christ. Woe unto you when all men shall speak well of you. That's another one of those great paradoxes that Jesus introduces into our reasoning to understand that the goal of being Christ-like is not to be so loving and wonderful with everyone that everyone recognizes and sees it. Although you may be that loving and that wonderful with everyone, you will have conflicts and enemies. There'll be fears within and conflicts without and there is no way we can escape it. So we shouldn't be surprised when all men don't think very well of us. And all men has two areas of, uh, two audiences. Those audiences without that hate you because you follow Christ uh, from the disposition of a worldly mind and that less fortunate audience within uh, where enmity occurs because of differences in judgment and offenses that, that happen without meaning, uh, without it, rather intention. So this point is to say, and we'll see this later, Expect persecution, not just from without, but from within. Anybody who's lived the truth in a while knows that this is a feature of life in the Ecclesia. Then he says something about eye servants and men pleasers, which to me is a very interesting set of terms. Eye servants and men pleasers. He says, I found it impossible to avoid giving offense. Best of intentions well-meaning, full of principles, impossible to avoid giving offense. And after many struggles against the inevitable, I quietly and grimly surrendered to the inevitable. I saw that I could not prevent the making of enemies without becoming an eye servant and a pleaser of men. I therefore made up my mind to accept enmity, to sort of be resigned to it. I do not mean to give up the idea of being friendly. <laughs> so I think that's a, a sweet note to end on in this particular paragraph. I do not mean to give up the idea of being friendly, but I found it inevitable that I would have um, enmity. But focusing on what he says in the middle there, that's in bold, I could not prevent the making of enemies without becoming an eye servant and a men pleaser. This is the false persona that is used by men who are interested in their own status more than they are in principle, in the following of principles. Principles are the things that get you in trouble. That is the basic idea of all the things that we learn from God's word. Those are principles. They come to us in the form of stories, of laws, of commandments, of testimonies, uh, of things that were written about, of circumstances that men were helplessly bound to, like King David or like Paul. Uh, all these things are the things that give us one principle after another without measure, without end. How many principles can you derive from one story? They just keep on yielding because the basic idea applied to all manner of circumstances is applicable in the form of principle even though what happened in that specific circumstance in scripture may not be directly applicable to what you're experiencing. But the principle is there. Why the law of, of Moses may be obsolete in terms of its, uh, of its indictment of sin but it's certainly not obsolete in the form of principle. The principles are, 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 are just a, an endless barrel of meal for us in which we read this and we go, well, that, that applied to this would say this. And that's the basic idea of what the law was trying to convey, giving us an ongoing understanding of righteousness. And that righteousness is of great value in our growth, in the truth and in the stabilization and peace of ecclesial life. So that's what he's saying. And what my point is, derived from that, if I can take a principle from his letter and, and offer it to you, is, it, 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 is not to let status override principle. That status is how we look. It's our image to brethren and sisters. And um, if we're all bound up in status, 
and and we make principles defer to status, then we're going to we'll fall into the trap of being uh, the servants of the way people see us. That's image. And pleasers of men. If you're pleasers of men, are you really pleasing God? You can carry that too far. We're going to be talking about that a little bit later too and thinking you, all you do is please God and it doesn't matter what men think and you can go wrong in that way too. So in every respect, what we talk about today has to be set in balance, in the balance of spiritual reason and seasoning. And he speaks about the hurtful oppositions that he experienced. And I think, like speaking for myself, um, I know opposition well and I may be speaking to those of you who have been around this block a few times, you may know opposition. You may, If you haven't experienced it directly uh, to the things that you've asserted, if you're young and you haven't experienced yet, there will be opposition. And if it's not yours, you can look at the Christadelphian community and, and ask this question, is there opposition? And once you, you that answer is an, a, 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 an undeniable but very sad yes. There is opposition and it seems to be way uh, too strong. It's inordinate and it has caused divisions and splits of all kinds uh, resulting in many different fellowships and um, and that in light of a, of a basic principle to not let it, there be any schism among us we're not supposed to say I'm of this and I'm of that and follow this name and that name or say oh I'm well you know I'm above all that I'm Christ none of that is right but we're fellow workers in a gospel that is the only light in this world. It's a dim light. It's the, the reflection of the bright light of the sun that is now in the dark stage of the world. We're only in the position of the moon, the bride of Christ, and with a reflected light puts the only light that exists in this world. And that is the, 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 the unity that exists between God and Christ, which transfers to his bride uh, as in the form of one body and produces a unity uh, between ourselves and Christ. And that unity is not designed to make us real happy. It is designed to show people who don't know the world, that is the world, that the world might know that thou hast sent me. Because when the world looks at itself, all it sees is conflict, disunity, uh, variance, politics, fake this, false that. And uh, when they look at, 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 at the body of Christ, they are supposed to see something that proves to them. And it's unity that does it. That's what Jesus said in his prayer in John 17. It proves to them that God has a son, that he sent this son into this world, and that the light that is reflected from that son's bright light into this dark world is the light that only unity can portray. Unity illuminates. So he says, I'm not able to carry myself toward you as I should desire. Then in a moment of kind of honesty, he says, because of chronic physical discomfort of body, I've sure known that, and the grimness begotten of collision with opposition. Collision with opposition. He felt like he was in a, a collision. The opposition was so forceful and uh, met with equal strengths, whatever he happened to be asserting at the time. The constant action in one line of things I realize that I must appear a very repugnant person in your eyes, notwithstanding my strong desire and best efforts to sustain a different part. So then he goes into the importance of principle, saying, please do not bring charges about which I cannot own. Don't, don't falsely accuse me. Such, such an honest way. Please don't do that to me. And that's what Paul's second letter to the Corinthians is all about, is please don't falsely accuse me. We'll see that in a minute. I do not and have not aimed at personal exaltation. I enjoy not and never have enjoyed the position into which circumstances have forced me. Any arranging brother can say this. Anybody that's involved in reconciliation efforts can say this. I enjoy not and never have enjoyed the position in which circumstances have forced me. When you are forced into a controversy, it's not an enjoyable thing. It's hard work. It's exhaustive work. My, my father was a part of the original reunion effort and. North America and Chicago and he used to come home totally exhausted. All he did was talk all weekend and he would come home and he looked like he, a soldier returning from uh, the thick of battle. His face was all drawn, his eyes were half shut and he would give a report to the Ecclesia and the report would sound like a man, sound like a sail that had no wind in it anymore. He was so exhausted and that was from the work of reconciliation. So then he says this, um, I enjoy not, I never have enjoyed the position into which circumstances have forced me and I am anxious 
This is the importance of principle over status. I'm anxious only for the ascendancy of principles. What an important thing to understand. I'm anxious only for the ascendancy of principles. This is what we do in our exhortations. We focus our hearts on the principles that come from God's word and that has the ability to build us up together in love. And could, and could hide me out of sight when they are exalted. In other words, it really isn't about me. It's about the principles that we get that are the, our instruction in righteousness in this ministry of reconciliation. And he goes into what Robert Roberts would inevitably go into, the importance of truth. Men who rejoice in the truth are not to be mistaken or confused with those in whom personal elevation is a more controlling influence. And that, again, is this juxtaposition of status and image on one's, one hand and the elevation of principles and self-sacrifice on the other. People who go into this, these kinds of conflicts are self, self-sacrificial. They endure everything that is concomitant in a controversy because they are self-sacrificial at the root. They are very humble men and may not sound like it when you listen to their, their passion about the truth and their assertion of the principles in the midst of controversy, but these are very humble men. And they, they have that same kind of thing. They're not interested in, in personal elevation. He goes on to say, if I've been compelled to take a prominent and offensive part, it has been to my sorrow. So little has been a satisfaction in the sense of your surmises. Now listen to what he says. And tell me, this isn't how, how Jesus felt, how Paul felt, how many of the prophets felt, and may have been how you felt. It is how I have felt. So little has been a satisfaction in the sense of your surmises that I have felt the greatest kindness God could show me would be to lay me where all his servants rest while the present confusion reigns upon the earth. You can feel this way when instead of when you give love and you receive hatred in exchange for it. Is this not exactly what Paul went through, what the Lord himself went through? They were applying love and receiving hatred in return. That's why Jesus said, you got expect persecution and when you get it, jump up for joy because your crown is assured. When you're persecuted for righteousness, say, blessed are you, he said. So then he goes into the importance of mercy in the context of all of this, which, you know, mercy tends to be that thing that overrides everything, that when there are irreconcilable differences, is a mistake you, mistakes and sins you can't avoid, offenses and judgment that are, are irretrievable. Mercy is the thing that covers it all and says, well, you know, it's <laughs> the best we can do um, in the end. Christ will resolve all things. And that's, that's the, the sense of mercy. And now he says, if my whole work and my whole influence to promote the truth in public and in private, in theory and in practice, ought you not to be merciful to what you may consider my infirmities? This is like a very earnest appeal. You know, like if I have an infirmity and if that comes across to you as an offense, um, shouldn't you be merciful with me? Um, very straightforward, kind of childlike appeal. You know, please understand. Ought you not to help? This is where he's, he is right in the midst of Paul's message uh, in his first letter to the Corinthians when he says, I am, you know, you shouldn't be saying, I'm of Paul, I'm of Apollos. But we are fellow workers in Christ. We're co-workers. There's a job that Jesus gave us to do, a return on his investment. And we should be working together to bring him that return. Not just individually, not just in, in the midst of schismatic differences, but together Put the emphasis on the work and the schisms will disappear. Same thing true for Christadelphians. We've got a gospel that the world is ignorant of. How many people have you talked to in your life that never heard anything about the kingdom? Ever. Not one word about the kingdom. They're blind to it as if, as if the kingdom is, is, is something that exists on another planet and, and hasn't even come to us in the form of a message. As a matter of fact, when Robert Roberts came to Norfolk, they put an ad in the paper that said, uh, a Mr. Roberts has, is going to give a talk uh, where he proposes that, that the um, Bible, he, he proposes to show from the Bible that the kingdom of God will be on the earth. So strange a headline that they knew that would be in the ears of its audience. So 
That kingdom is, is the, the key to everything for us. That's our hope. That's the reality. And that's what we're looking for. So he, 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 his appeal is to their mercy. And he says, speaking to people he's trying to, to get to understand should be his co-workers. Ought you not to help in any way? Ought you not to, to put your investment with the bankers if you don't have enough talent to produce the investment, the return on the investment yourself? Ought you not to help in any way in your power instead of trying to weaken and hinder by unfriendly words and deeds? So this is something, you know how we've said repeatedly, there's a theme that's been running in the background of all our remarks this weekend, and that is that God has already addressed this. He knows what we were made out of. He made us himself. He knows what we go through in life. And he's already addressed in advance the things that we need to understand when things come up. So he says, listen to me, you who know righteousness. You people in whose heart is my law. And although this is from Isaiah, what God is referring to is you people who have the Lord Jesus Christ in your heart. Because this is the new covenant he's speaking of. I will take my word and write it upon your heart. It's not no longer going to be some external law. I'm going to take it and internalize it in every follower of my son. You people who know righteousness, people in whose heart is my law, do not fear the reproach of men. It will follow, but don't be afraid of it, nor be afraid of their insults. For the moth will eat them up like a garment, and the worm will eat them up like wool. But my righteousness will be forever and my salvation from generation to generation. I, even I, am he who comforts you when you are afflicted in controversy and enmity. But there's an inversion of the point. The principle here is one of reassurance. He says, don't be afraid. I'm with you. My, my word is in your heart. There's an assurance there. But there's also an indictment against the people that, that run the en- enmity. So, which one are you? Which one are you going to be? The one who is a co-worker, who's very busy with the gospel, almost too busy with the gospel to get involved with controversies, but um, irresistibly drawn into controversies in an effort to find peace, to reconcile, to bring people together, to, in fact, be one of those peacemakers that the Lord has blessed in the Beatitudes? Or are you one of these who bring the reproach of men? You know, Psalm 15 queries, who will climb the holy hill of the Lord? Who's going to be there and become a part of that royal administration in the interior where the sacrifices are offered by Christ and those who prepare them? Well, one of the things he says, and Antony answered that question, is who lifts up, who takes not up a reproach against his brother. So there are people who take up reproaches and there are people who feel reproaches. Which one would you like to be? There's a lot of studious self-discipline in the answer to that question, or not. Let's take a closer look to the second letter of the Corinthians. We've already seen this. I'm not going to bother to read the introduction again. We've seen it three times, four times already. Um, You know what he says. He's speaking about the God of comfort. He mentions comfort as many times as he do, and he also speaks about affliction. But in Paul's case, the suffering and affliction that he endured wasn't the kind we were speaking about, except maybe in, in, in indirectly. He did receive abuse at the hand of hostile Jews in the synagogues. But it was more the affliction that came from controversy, from making his appeal to Felix and thinking, Felix responding, thinking Paul was a crazy man, or, or trying to convince the Jews and get, getting beaten up, or um, ultimately getting thrown in prison, or, or writing to the Corinthians and saying, you know, like I've... Or the Galatians saying, you know, you foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? There, there isn't another gospel. Who's, who's changing the gospel of Christ into something that's distorted? And then it, it's not the gospel anymore. So even if I or an angel of heaven preached to you any other gospel than that which, have, which we have preached, let him be accursed. There's nothing but, but anathema to the gospel to distort it. Those were the areas in which Paul experienced the affliction he's speaking about and in the second letter, it was specifically the affliction imposed on him of criticisms that came from, the, from those, his opposers, in the uh, Corinthian Ecclesia after his first letter. He sent them a letter. He meant well. It hurt them really bad. They finally resolved. 
uh, the problems. I don't know if they resolved the, the schisms. But out of that first letter came a lot of, of, of fault finding and false accusation against Paul. And that's what the second letter uh, he, he was compelled to write um, in order to address it. It's interesting in the second letter, he was forced into self-defense. He didn't want to defend himself. And he, and he kept saying, I speak as a fool, but I'm going to boast a little bit about what I did here, what I did there. Look at what I'm doing. Look at how much I love you. Jesus made the same appeal to the people to, that um, put the enmity against him when he said, if you don't believe my words, believe my works. Why won't you believe me? These are not my words, he would say. In self-defense, these are the words of my father. Listen to them. They come to you through me from God, the God that you say you worship but are ignoring when he stands in front of you. Like Jesus, like Paul, sometimes we can be forced, and Robert Roberts was also forced into self-defense, and Paul resorts to boasting 29 times in his second letter. And this was brought to my attention by Brother Roberts in the context of his letter to his enemies. What caused the conflict in Corinth? Well, the first letter is involved with discord and dissipation. But is that not what Jesus said we would be dealing with? Especially not in Paul's time. I mean, he had, he, he, it was introduced in his time, but it's carried through all the way to our times where it's in an, at an extreme level. Discord and dissipation are the two things Jesus identified which would be present in the vineyard when the, the, the delay of his coming was being experienced as we are experiencing it right now. There, we're in the delay. Everybody expected him to come a whole lot earlier than he ever has come so far. And that is the delay. And in that delay, there are two principal things that Jesus identified would be the cause, the root cause of the trouble in his vineyard. And they were dis discord and dissipation. This is the way he characterizes his ecclesia, his household, in the, in the last days of before he comes. If that wicked servant says to himself, my master is delayed and begins to beat his fellow servants. So there's a relationship between Jesus not coming back yet and the disposition of people in his vineyard going, going wrong, getting hostile and oppositional and defiant. If he begins to beat his fellow servants, I don't think this necessarily means literal beatings. I think it's the beatings of controversy, the beatings of words, of offenses and judgments as they beat upon our hearts and uh, make us feel like our lives are ruined because of them. That's the discord. Would you say there's discord in the last days in the vineyard? Have you ever seen discord? <laughs> well, Jesus was there in advance, wasn't he? Speaking about our times. He said, well, expect this. Don't be surprised when this happens. And who eats and drinks with drunkards. I'm not going to go into it right here. Just think for a minute. What a probing indictment in the vineyard that must be in the last days before he returns. Would you say there's a problem of eating and drinking with dissipated people don't necessarily have to be in the bar with them do you anymore they're accessible in, in all points worldwide their dissipation is everywhere present in our lives it's just a click away would you say this is a problem I'm sure it is and so are you we're not in any disagreement on this point you live in this world you know what I'm saying we don't need to probe it too deeply, but these are the two things that Jesus said are part of the delay, the characteristic of the delay. I, they may in part be caused by the delay, but they are also the conditions that we specifically are dealing with in the vineyard. This is respective to the vineyard is bad enough in the world, but think of it if it's seeping into the vineyard. And then of offenses and judgments in his second letter, he says this. For his letters, they say, are weighty and powerful. So that was what the people that were pro-Paul's point were saying. So that's, that's the offense, like his letters. You know, they're weighty and powerful to us. It's offensive. But now they're going to make a judgment. And well, his bodily presence is weak. His speech is contemptible. Who would listen to anything Paul says? So that's, that's the, the judgment. 
It's offenses and judgments. And if you think about it, in the controversies of Christadelphians, um, at the root there may be a serious problem with a doctrine that is wrong. When we all love the truth and we're protectors of the truth, we're defenders of the truth. The truth is, the, is our hallmark in this world. That's the thing that energizes and sustains us through time. But is that all that the controversies are involved with? Just, uh, you know, discussions about what's true and what's not true? In the midst of a controversy, emotions get aroused and they are fleshly. There's variance and there's emulation. There's a lot of other negative emotions and fleshly responses. And these cause offenses and judgments. What I mean by that is people will say and do things that are offensive to others. They may not mean to be, but they are. They work out that way. And then there are differences in judgment. All you have to do is sit on an arranging board to know the differences, what differences in judgment are like. And, or one ecclesia versus another ecclesia and a difference in judgment there. Or one fellowship and another fellowship and a difference in judgment there. Offenses in judgment are at the root of it all and First and Second Corinthians are all about offenses in judgment. If you want to find out what we're dealing with now in discord and dissipation, read First and Second Corinthians again. And you'll understand it in the context of offenses and judgments. So they made these judgments about Paul. I'm just going to bullet through these pretty quickly without getting into where uh, so much where they are. I've put these in the, the references so that you can get the PDFs and look at it for yourself. But uh, the, 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 his opposers in the Corinthian ecclesia swayed many people, many brethren, against Paul to the extent that after that and after his other conflicts and other ecclesias, by the time he was incarcerated in Rome... And, and, and put down on his knees in front of a Roman centurion who then cut his head off to execute him. Um, he was all but left alone. He was all but abandoned. Uh, so, so furious was the opposition that came against him. And this was recognized by Paul in um, his letter to the Corinthians. So they said, well, he, he said he was going to come, then he didn't come. He, he says yes, then he says no, then he says yes, then he says no. Is, can anybody understand what Paul is getting at? One day it's yes, next day it's no. And, uh, you know, as insipid as that sounds, um, it hurt Paul. They, they, they accused him of changing his plans, meaning like the guy's unreliable. If he's unreliable in his plans, why would you listen to his advice? He's just generally unreliable and his plans prove it. It's the way the devil works. It picks one thing up to wrongfully accuse someone of something else. As he was a coward. He corrupted the word. You know, well, not according to Paul. He goes to great length in the second letter to prove not he wasn't corrupting it, he was exalting the word. He lacked the support of the people in authority maybe some of the leaders in the ecclesias. He was dishonest. These are actually the, the things they said about the Apostle Paul, this man that we love for his, his fervor in the truth. So he made this appeal to them. He said, No, I plead with you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all speak the same thing, work to find the same mind and judgment, that there'd be no divisions among you, but that you'd be perfectly joined together in the same mind and the same judgment. And this doesn't only apply to life in inter-ecclesial relationships or inter-fellowship relationships. This also applies inside an ecclesia within, in the brothers in the ecclesia, in particular in the brothers in the arranging board. It's been said that if the arranging board is divided, the ecclesia will divide. And I think you could look into history and find that to be pretty much a pattern that is recognizable in our community. So his appeal comes back and he says, be of the same mind and the same judgment, but that is not natural. Isn't this a wonderful illustration of men? Maybe some women too, if they're a little bit catty, but men. This is what men do. They either do it in the ring, ultimate fighting or whatever, or they box each other, or they compete in business and they're ruthless, or they assassinate each other politically, or they get at it with differences in judgment on spiritual matters. And is it not all the same thing? It's competition. It's vying for status. It's seeing who's got the stronger intellectual arm or theological arm. And so they sit there and they go this way and they go that way. And sometimes the arms break under the stress. It is not natural. 
to have sameness of mind. And that's because it's spiritual. All the things that we are called to in Christ have his mind is spiritual. And being spiritual takes work that runs against our grain. That's why we say it's not natural. Naturally, we're sown in dishonor. Spiritually, we're raised in glory. So this is you know, kind of like the plight of human nature, regardless of whether we want it to be that way or not. This is the way life is. So I want to go over briefly um, offenses and judgments, specifically discord and disagreement and variance and, and emulation, and show you what it is that, that produces this disposition to the extent in brothers where it offsets a spiritual disposition, much more natural to go into this realm and maybe not even re- realize it. This is what Jesus said about offenses and judgments. Thou preparest a table before me. That is the table of reconciliation. That table which we use to show that we're unified in Christ. We, we have a common union in our communion. And it represents our unity in Christ. It represents our fellowship. So all the more important to be of the same mind and judgment doctrinally and the way that doctrine is practiced. Very, very important to us. And it's right for us to assign the level of importance that we do to it. But it is wrong for us to carry it over into extreme inordinate controversy. There's things about it that are right and things about it that are wrong. We all know that. And that's the, 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 the difficult work that we have in producing reconciliation in this context. Jesus' preparation of a table was in the presence of his enemies. And I think that follows through with the Lord Jesus Christ as he is present among us even to this day. It's in the midst of enemies. However you want to, whatever level you want to use that term um, in your understanding. That's what Robert Roberts said about it. The record of ecclesial life seems to be one of constant controversy. So should that make you discouraged? Should that make you say, well, I don't need this. Turn around and walk out the door. I quit. Is that the response that we're supposed to make to the record of ecclesial life? What would we have done if Jesus had done that? He turned around and walked out of Israel saying, I quit. He could have done that any time. What would we have done if Paul had done that? Paul let himself get beat up. He was so, um, uh, he, he understood the principle of the tenacity of bringing unnatural feelings to spiritual feelings in the midst of these controversies in the Ecclesia. So he was persistent. He was indomitable. You couldn't stop him. You had to cut off his head to stop him. You had to crucify Christ to stop him. What is it that will stop you? You should have that kind of tenacity. You should stay there and do everything you can all your life working with all of this that we're talking about. You know it as well as I do. In the midst of something we should expect. This is something, this is not a strange thing. This is something Jesus promised would be existent uh, in his household, especially in the last days in discord and dissipation. So offenses come from hatred. You know, it's not just like, well, intellectually, I find that so offensive. They come, uh, the offense, as it is uh, asserted in an an accusation, many times false against a brother, comes from hatred. And the hatred comes from something you just can't stand. It doesn't come from just differences in judgment. We can have differences in judgment and not hate each other. When we hate each other, it turns into that kind of offense. And this is the proverb that proves that point. Hatred stirs up strife, but love covers all offenses. So hatred and offenses are put in juxtaposition here in this proverb. Do you know how to recognize hatred in you? Because a lot of people don't. A lot of people think that they are full of God's word, his truth, his purpose, his principles, his love, and they are full of hatred. Venom comes out of their mouth that they assign principle to. It's a strange thing, but that's the way human nature... I mean, are we surprised at that point? How how deceptive human nature is? Isn't that what Jeremiah said? The heart of man is deceptive above all things. So that's the deception in recognizing hatred in yourself. Here's how to do it. It says in Isaiah, all that watch for iniquity are cut off. So think about brethren... But especially in your self-examination, think, do I watch for iniquity? Is that something I do? Because if you watch for iniquity in other people, you'll find it. If you look for iniquity, it's there. 
And you may even find something that's not there, and that turns into false accusation. How much of that is there in this world? It's rampant. It's out of control. So, so be careful not to watch for iniquity. That make a man an offender for word. Have you ever heard that sort of thing in ecclesial differences or in controversies? Uh, you know what he said? Well, sometimes those words turn into patterns. That's very hard to kind of put in the balance of this principle. But Solomon said, well, you know, don't, don't feel so strongly when you hear someone cursing you because you know yourself you have cursed others. So you hear somebody guilty of the same thing you're guilty of, it's kind of hard to point the finger, isn't it? So that's another point that Isaiah makes. Isaiah has this all over his, his um, whole book. So um, this sort of thing is, is not just isolated in this particular passage. Um, people say a lot of things they don't mean. And what mercy does is cover, cover the words that otherwise might turn into offenses in us. This is, these are the things that turn into hatred in us. That lay a snare for him that reprove in the gate. So they recognize that you have kind of um, your finger on the latch at the gate. And what's the gate? The gate is the ingress and egress to the ecclesia. It's where people come and go into the, into the uh, courtyard, into the temple. The gate is the ingress and egress into the house of God. And there are a lot of brothers that are right there by that gate. Jesus said, I have the key to that gate. And um, no man can open it if I shut it and no man can shut it if I open it. So we, we recognize in that principle that he's in ultimately in control of the ingress and egress into the ecclesia, but not to the extent I think that we would like him to be in control because he lets weeds grow among tares in that, that ingress and egress. But there are people like the Pharisees who come up with questions that are designed to put a snare for somebody who is trying, best he can, to bring righteousness in through the instrument of reproof. So he says, that's not, that, that, that is a way of recognizing hatred in yourself too. And how subtle would that be? You've, you've got this question you think is going to stop him. And it's really a snare. It may not be justifiable. It may be based on a complete misassessment of who you're working with with respect to who this snare is laid for. Um, but it's a problem. Avoid that. And there's an incoming call here. Should I get this? Can you make your speaker? Hello? Okay. Um, to turn aside the just for a thing of naught. These are all in a row in the same passage. So you think we do that? You think there's that form of hatred anywhere? People who turn aside the just, who are they? There's a resurrection for the just and the unjust, right? So they must be people who will be in the resurrection for a thing of naught. What's a thing of naught? It's for a non-existent issue, an issue that has been, has been inflated into a problem that really isn't a problem. Is there ever any circumstance in which we might find ourselves turning aside the just for a thing of naught. And if there is, we should recognize, even though it's so subtle, it feels like protection of the truth, that we are turning aside the just for a thing of naught. And those people, Jesus says in his judgment dialogue in Matthew 25, inasmuch as they did it to one of the least of these, my brethren, they have done it to me. And he tells them to depart from him because they're workers of iniquity. We don't see ourselves in that light. But the heart of, of man is so deceptive that we could fall in his trap without even knowing it. God forbid that our controversies would cause us to go so far as to turn aside the just for a thing of naught. And would this not also include those people who are just in their faith through grace? Because it's faith that justifies us through grace, and it's grace that forgives the worst of sins. If they turned aside Paul, it was a work of iniquity. If we turn aside somebody whom the Lord has forgiven and desires to save, it's no less than that. They are very sobering thoughts, but this is how to recognize hatred in yourself because you need to, we all need to, to look at this carefully as we examine ourselves because it's, 
Every one of these is extraordinarily subtle. They can, they can, each one of these things can be masked as righteousness in defense of God, in defense of the truth, and they are not. So then let's look at discord and agreement. Paul says, agree with one another, live in peace. That's where the peace comes from. It comes from agreement, and that's where agreement-based fellowship lies in a uh, same mind and same judgment on the matters on the application of the practice of fellowship. There are two problems that lead to discord. One is that we want to focus on, I guess we have, what, two minutes left here? And we do the best we can. Better we just work into these points and, and get the ones that we can and not finish than to race through them and not get any of them and finish. Being righteous over much. I think any one of us can recognize that the potential for this is a problem. The potential to recognize this as a source problem um, is very high. You can just be too righteous. Over. You can do this with your kids. You can, you can do this as, as a, an older brother in an ecclesia. You can just come down on people with standards and things, um, intellectualism, theologies they can't understand. You can overwhelm them with your knowledge and essentially be righteous over much. And we can't, we can't do that. You don't, you don't feed children meat they can, babies meat they can't eat and you give them milk because it, it's good for them. They can digest that. So he says, don't be overly righteous and make yourself too wise. Then he goes on to say, why should you destroy yourself? So actually being righteous over much can be on a, lead you on a path of self-destruction? Yeah. If you become a sower of discord with your righteousness over much, God hates that and he hates the sowers of it. Those people do not sow um, the, 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 the seeds of righteousness and wisdom and peace. There's another problem we have, and that's going beyond what is written. Would anyone here suggest that people who are great theological students and, and develop knowledge over time, mixed with human nature, don't have the temptation to go beyond what is written, especially if they write all the more? I mean, Harry Tennant was looking at what we're going through in the United States one time, and, and we were talking about this a little earlier, and he said, um, if Paul were here, he would say, why did I write Romans? Why do you need to write a whole other book that explains the relationship of sin and death, its origin, its outcome in the atonement, and its outcome in the resurrection, if I've already explained all that, and I think pretty clearly in Romans. What part of Romans did you not understand? That requires a book to be written that's twice the size of Romans and um, goes beyond what is written. Point taken. So there's a point about agreement and humility. Humility is the only spiritual disposition that makes agreement work or, or the tendency of, of variation in, in judgment to work. So he says, finally, brothers, and look at this. Look at how plain and simple this is. Rejoice. That's where we start. Joy in the Lord. The kingdom of God is not meat and drink. It is not crackers and manischewitz. That is not the kingdom of God. It is not dunking underwater. It is not animals burning on the altar. It is not circumcision. But joy and peace in the spirit of Christ. That's the kingdom of God. So he says, aim for restoration. Comfort one another. Agree with one another. Live in peace. This is, these are unnatural things. These are spiritual things. And the God of love and peace will be with you. One more thing. Variance and emulation. Let's get through this fast. These are two words that people do not understand. So how are you going to avoid fleshly impulse of variance and emulation if you don't even know what they mean? That's why I put this section in here. Why I'm going to take a couple of minutes to show you. They're part of the fruits of the flesh. We know that. He says, the fruits of the flesh are, and so on and so forth, and variance and emulations. He adds to that wrath, strife, seditions, heresy, and embassies, and envyings, and hatred. And we know those are the components of controversy. Are they not? So in the house of God, controversy has caused an incalculable amount of faith and suffering um, and loss of faith. I didn't tell you what they mean. <laughs> I don't know what I have. Didn't. Nope. Um, variance means that particular oppositional disagreement where it becomes a difference of view that is irreconcilable. It could be a difference of judgment, difference of opinion, difference in, in application of principle, difference in doctrine. But variance is what we have, for example, with Trinitarians. We are at variance with them. 
He calls it a fleshly impulse because once you know the truth, if you are wise over much and you go beyond what is written, you'll make all manner of variance that doesn't have anything to do with things that are supposed to be at odds with each other. You're just inventing this out of your nature and arguing about it because this is what men do. An emulation is bestmanship. You think you gave a good talk? Wait till you hear mine. You think you have a good theology? I'll show you a theology that explains it all the, the better. You wrote Elpis Israel. I'm going to write a book that's all the better than Elpis Israel and it'll just set everything straight. I don't know, well, that book, well, that was an old book. We'll write a new book now and that'll set everything straight. And if that doesn't work, we'll get on the internet and put a, a website in it that has 1,050 pages in it and just read them all and you'll understand exactly what Paul meant when he said, agree with one another, live in peace. <laughs> so let's talk for a minute about reconciliation. This is where we'll close. Just a couple minutes left if you can indulge the time. I think we have a half hour between now and, and next, next point. All right, so 20 minutes, we'll do the same thing. Thank you. Thank you for your patience with me this after this this weekend. Thank you. And sometimes it can be a little bit difficult to go a little bit longer, but I, I believe if you're bored, it's my fault. And therefore, you let me know and I will take all the blame for your boredom. Okay? I, it's not a problem with me, with you. Sameness of mind and judgment comes across in this beautiful figure of what God showed Noah in a covenant. And then he turned into the full spectrum of the overarching power of Christ's rule in his kingdom in the throne, the throne of Christ, because that too is described uh, being surrounded as a rainbow. It says, immediately I was in the spirit and behold, a throne was set in heaven and one sat on the throne and there was a rainbow around the throne. God's covenant surrounded the throne. If that's the throne of David and Christ is on it, then the assembly of saints that are around that throne are likened to the rainbow that Noah saw in the cloud, full of color, the full spectrum of color. Around about the throne I saw 24 elders clothed in white raiment. They had on their heads crowns of gold. There were seven lamps of fire burning before the throne, which are the seven spirits of God. So in the tabernacle there were seven little candlesticks. And then when Jesus wrote the letters to the seven churches, there were... There were seven times seven. There were, there were seven candlesticks with seven um, candles in them. Each one of them was an ecclesia representative of the house of God. In the kingdom, that turns into the real thing. Seven spirits of fire. Seven spirits of that thing which brings God's judgments into the world that makes up his very nature. Fire. God is a consuming fire. So, looking at this picture as the reality of where we're headed in the royal administration of Jesus... There's a son of God who's seated on his throne. He's the light that's come into this world. Around him are the 12 disciples seated on 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. Around them, I think, are 24 elders. Um, these are mentioned as being part of the royal administration. They're kind of singled out as the upper end of his administration. Maybe people like Moses and Daniel and Joseph, a lot of experience. And who in our time might be among the 24 elders? Who indeed? And around them, seven spirits of fire, which looked to John like a rainbow. It was so lovely, so full of the covenant of the Lord, where he said, this is the covenant I will make with you. I will never again destroy all flesh. But I will bring my light into this world in the clouds, in the day of rain. So this, looking at this in elevation, this is what the royal administration would look like according to those scriptural points. There's the 12 tribes, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. There are the 24 elders seated around the throne. And then, just using the number figuratively, there are 144,000 people in this Congress, in this government. So you look at this picture, each one of those squares is a hundred saints. Each one of the sections of squares is a thousand saints. Each uh, column is 6,000 saints. Each row is 24,000 saints. So this is literally, in this illustration, 144,000 saints. You're looking at the figure. So that's a symbolic figure, maybe many more than that. But even if it were just this, if this were a literal number... Do you think Jesus could rule the world with this government? I don't think he could do it by himself on a throne in Jerusalem. 
He needs people who are like him, who have his mind, have his spirit, have his training in the midst of all these controversies to go to all parts of the world and to become the judges and rulers and princes and kings in the world, in his administration. This makes a lot of sense to me. And this is what is promised you can be a part of if you're a part of those seven spirits of fire that sit around the throne and give all praise and power and honor to glory to the king when he puts you as his crown on his head. Because you're a chosen generation. You're a royal priesthood. You're his own special people. That you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light to a people who have just now learned that God is with us. That what some people try to tell them is now perfectly visible in the eyes of all men when every eye sees him. This was really true. And you are there and you are bringing this peace to the world. To the end of all controversy and to the reconciliation of God and men.